1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel. And today I'm pleased to welcome Greg Berman and Julian Adler, who are the authors of Start Here, a roadmap to reducing mass incarceration, which was published in 2018 by the New Press. Uh, Julian and Greg, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, before we home in on the book itself, I wonder if I might get each of you just to tell our listeners a little bit about uh, yourselves and what you do and how you came to this project.
0: Um, so, this is Greg. Uh, I am the executive director of an organization called the Center for Court Innovation which is trying to create a more fair, more effective, and more humane justice system. And I've had the pleasure of leading the agency for the past uh, 15 or 16 years now. And the book really grows out of the work of of the Center for Court Innovation um, and includes a lot of the characters, projects, ideas that the Center for Court Innovation has championed over the years, but really is beyond just the Center for Court Innovation Really, um, we've had, Julian and I have had been blessed to travel the world and travel the country and see a lot of innovative criminal justice practice in, in action. Um, and the book is our effort to represent that work to the world and really inject what I hope is a, a message of, uh, of hope, actually, um, into a, a, the public debate about criminal justice, which in our analysis can tend to can, can tend to get a little bleak because there's a lot of problems in the justice system, and I think that we don't shirk away from acknowledging that. Um, but we want to move. The book is an effort to move away from diagnosis and towards treatment uh, for what ails the criminal justice system.
2: And this is Julian. I'm the director of policy and research here at the center. Um, over the course of uh, a decade here, um, I've worked. Um, In New York City, in operations, I ran a project called the Red Hook Community Justice Center in Brooklyn, New York. I've worked on a range of national criminal justice reform initiatives, including the MacArthur Foundation Safety and Justice Challenge, and I currently um, work to really bridge the worlds of research, policy, and practice, both here in New York City and um, nationally. (laughs)
1: So Julian, uh, excuse me, Greg uh, alluded to this a little bit, but one of the uh, one of the things that I appreciate about the book is that you uh, focus on what we can do about mass incarceration in the U.S. and as you say in the book, uh, you take it as a given that it's a problem, but I want to back up and and do just a little bit of, of, of foundation laying there and for anybody uh, who is listening, who may still need convincing on that particular score. Can you sort of lay out in, in broad terms, what you identify as the scale and scope of the problem that, that we're going to try to solve here?
2: Sure. Um, so for anyone who needs convincing, um, the United states uh, sort of leads leads the the world in um incarceration um is the world's largest jailer um, you know, far and away, um both with respect to how many citizens are incarcerated and the length of time they're incarcerated on both of those scores, um the United States dwarfs all other nations. To give a sense of the um, what we mean by mass incarceration, approximately 2.3 million individuals are currently behind bars in the United States. And in addition to that, um, another 7 million plus are in the community but under the supervision of the criminal justice system. Another key point to make in terms of um, the problem of mass incarceration is that across the country, in every any given year, we see approximately 12 million admissions to local jails. And it's really important to emphasize that over 60% of the local jail population in the United States is pretrial, meaning individuals who have not been convicted of a crime, who under, under our constitutional system are innocent until proven guilty, but languish behind bars while their cases are pending, be, largely due to an inability to, to uh, pay money bail. So again, 2.3 million over 12 million admissions to local jails and a pretrial population that's over 60% of that jail population far and away exceeds any other nation in the world.
0: So Julian neatly kind of ties up in a bow some of the statistics, but I think it's just worth highlighting as we do in the book that there um, are people behind all of those numbers. And one of the things that we say in the book is that um, spending time behind bars, going to jail, going to prison, these institutions are accelerants of human misery. Um, the people that go go into jail, go into prison, tend to do so with a host of individual problems in their life, um, histories of trauma, substance use, mental illness, um, low levels of education. Um, and I think it's fair to say it's painting, painting with broad brush because I'm sure there are exceptions to the rule. But generally, people come out worse than they went in. And so there's huge individual costs for um, these millions of individuals that, that Julian highlights, but but that's just the start of it. Um, there's a ripple effect, of course. Uh, it affects their families in profound ways. Everyone in a family suffers when an individual is behind bars, and then it really uh, undermines the the health and structure of whole neighborhoods and, and whole cities as well. So. Uh, when you really start to try to wrap your mind around the the harmful effects of incarceration in in our country, it very quickly starts to spiral out out of control. Um, It's damaging on a host of different levels.
1: Um, So there's one more bit of brush clearing that I want to do before we start talking about what we can do about this. And that is that I think particularly on the left, uh, there are some misconceptions about about uh, uh, about what people are incarcerated for, right? You'll you'll very often hear people in lamenting the problem of mass incarceration in the U.S. Uh, very quickly say, and then the majority of people who are in jails or prison in America are there for nonviolent drug offenses. Uh, not true. Correct?
0: Yeah, I think that sometimes, you know, on the left, there's a tendency to focus on, on two different types of tragic stories, which do exist. Um, one type of tragic story are uh, miscarriages of justice, where, in fact, there, there are people who are innocent of criminal behavior, who are languishing behind bars. And, and thanks to organizations like the Innocence Project, we have a, a much greater sense uh, of the scale of that, um, which is not insignificant. And then there's a a, a tendency to focus, as you say, on the on the reality of the the war on drugs, um, which has, of course, had a disproportionate impact on people of color in our country. And to extrapolate from that, to make the argument that, you know, the vast majority of people behind bars are there for, you know, low level marijuana possession. And the numbers just don't really support that argument. Um, And I feel like part of the truth telling that this book is attempting to do is is just to highlight that fact. And the reality is if we truly want to roll back uh, our system uh, of incarceration, we not only, we we definitely should focus on those that are behind bars for nonviolent drug offenses, but that alone will not get us to the promised land. And uh, the reality is the majority of people who are Behind bars, uh, certainly in, in state prisons, are there have committed either in the instant case or in their history ha- have engaged in in acts of uh, violent behavior, and we're going to have to come up with alternatives for those folks as well.
1: So let's let's talk a little bit about how we get to the promised land. So you've got three broad strategies that you you fold your solutions into. The first is engaging the public itself in preventing crime. The second is to treat all defendants with dignity and respect. And the third is to link people to effective community-based interventions rather than to prison. So if we can, why don't we take each of those in turn? So let's start with uh, engaging the public self in preventing crime. What does that look like and how do we do that?
0: So I think that this is, in, in some respects, um, the most important thing. Uh, <laughs> we love all of our children, of course, but we may love this ch- child <laughs> the most. Because this is about a, a fundamental reorientation in the way we think of, about about justice in this country. And I, I think that we want to, to move from a reactive system that is responding after harms have occurred to a proactive orientation that aggressively tries to prevent crimes, um, and that we feel like the, the best case scenario in terms of reducing incarceration is is to prevent the crimes from happening in the first place, and we want to focus. I think there's a million investments that one can make to achieve that those goals, and, and certainly. People have focused on the importance of childhood education and, and, and other kinds of investments, and we're not arguing again, against those, but but we focus in particular on on, on two or three interventions and, and investments we think would reap huge dividends. One is to invest in youth development projects that engage um, at-risk young people in positive pro-social activities, particularly in the after-school hours, whether that be uh, entrepreneurial programs, educational programs, Mentoring, uh, there's a whole range that we think uh, will make make a positive difference and give young people positive pathways um, to professional development. So that that's an important investment. Second important investment in, is in what we call placemaking, which is really focusing in on the reality that um, crime tends to cluster in a handful of places in any in any given city or any given neighborhood. Uh, darkened alleyways, um, untended corners of parks, et cetera, and that by investing in better lighting, architectural improvements, by encouraging local residents to come out and and actually own those spaces, you can dramatically deter criminal behavior. And then lastly, we focus on the cure violence model, which is a model that um, trains People that have engaged in criminal behavior, often violent criminal behavior in the past, and turns them into um, mediators, um, peacemakers, credible messengers for anti-violence, an anti-violence message at the at the neighborhood level. And we've seen in places like the South Bronx and Central Brooklyn um, significant reductions in shootings and other violent behavior that have these cure violence programs. And I would just <clears throat> add you know, I guess, excuse me,
2: three things. One, that um, for folks who are listening who are more steeped in criminal justice reform, um, I think it's striking that we're starting with crime prevention. Typically, um, criminal justice reform discourse begins at the point of arrest, the critical decision whether to cite and release or divert at the point of arrest. And our argument is that that's too late. Not that it's too late, you shouldn't do it, but that if you are really committed to transforming the criminal justice system in the United States and appreciably reducing the use of incarceration, you have to take a step back at the point of crime prevention. And it really goes back to that initial brush clearing um, question that you asked about violence. By the time someone is charged and certainly convicted of a serious violent crime, It may be too late in most places in the United States, at least in the current moment, to um, craft an alternative sentencing program or another method to avoid incarceration. And that really by identifying high risk young people and other folks who are at serious risk of, you know, engaging in conduct that would land them in jail or most likely prison and preventing that um that we think is really um a winning strategy or a really promising strategy to reduce the population incarcerated on violent offenses um and i think the last point is also that by investing in community um we're really hoping to reanimate the relationship between communities most affected by the justice system um, and the justice system that's really designed to serve those communities in a capacity that's protective and helpful, rather than um, you know seen as either oppressive or unwanted. So you know that is all kind of contained in that argument for crime prevention up front. And again, at least in the current moment. That's not typically where criminal justice reformers begin the conversation.
1: You do, you know, you you, you point out in the book in, in in a number of different ways, in a number of different instances, the uh, the, the sheer volume of of the American prison population. Uh, that have uh, trauma, experience with trauma of one kind or another, some of which is from violence in their communities, right? So if we can reduce the violence in the community, theoretically we're reducing the kind of trauma that can make others susceptible to violent behavior, but also talk about uh, the enormous rates of mental illness among American prisoners. But I was curious that you don't sort of highlight the the treatment diagnosis and treatment of, of mental illness and certainly don't sort of raise that to the to the same level in that preden- prevention piece. I wonder if you could just sort of talk a little bit about how you think about the the, the way that mental illness and 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 sort of things associated with it play in that, that violent prevention strategy.
2: So it's interesting. Um I think an emphasis on behavioral health intervention, both preventative and responsive, is really shot through the book. Um, Interestingly, we discuss it in the context of a model called Seattle Law Enforcement Um Assisted Diversion, um, Seattle lead, um, where you know um, law enforcement is looking to instead of affecting custodial arrest connect individuals who are struggling with a whole range of behavioral health needs to services rather than um to the courthouse or to the jail uh, it's certainly um a preventative strategy, but yes it's it's a bit further along at the point of arrest um and then we talk pretty extensively about a program in New York City, the Nathaniel Project, run by an alternative to incarceration provider called Cases, where um, you know, individuals charged with very serious uh, felony level uh, crimes are offered very comprehensive community-based treatment and wraparound services as an alternative to prison. And we discuss both in the misdemeanor context and beyond that, the prevalence of trauma and the efficacy of trauma-informed care, um, both in the preventative and in the sentencing. I think what's interesting... You know your question raised in my mind the fact that we don't really compartmentalize that. And in some ways, it kind of, like I said, is shot through all of our strategies and the way that we think about the work from prevention through you know alternative sentencing. Um, but there's certainly a role for it. Um, and I think in some ways, uh, what you what you're pointing up is the fact that you know we do see that individuals don't necessarily find their way to those services um. On their own. And, and often it's the point of contact with the justice system that makes those critical linkages. And, and that's obviously um, an area for improvement, but one that, um, you know, has been challenging for a lot of folks, including folks working in public health um, and, and other forms of, you know, community justice
1: yeah and I think that does sort of uh, get at the dilemma there, right is that that you know arguably the the system that is most present in the lives, particularly of of poor and low income people is the criminal justice system and that is is their most likely opportunity to get maybe diagnosis and treatment if they need it. Um other folks in other places have sort of talked about ways in which we need to think about you know replacing some of the police force with social workers, maybe right and sort of start start sort of rethinking the role that some of those agencies play in low-income communities and maybe that would be a way uh, in which at least it, it outside the the formal institutions of the criminal justice system we could intervene. Uh, in those I, one of thing cases. I would
2: just add, and I don't even think it's in the book. So this is a bonus for your listeners um, who read the book and are just dying to know more about <laughs> the work of the Center for Court Innovation.
0: Preview to the
2: um, so this is, this is the breaking news portion of the podcast. So in designing community courts and community justice centers, both Red Hook, Midtown, um, our work in Brownsville and other places in the book – All of those programs are free and voluntary on a walk-in basis to the community. In other words, we are making an effort in those projects not to limit service provision and clinical assistance to folks who have had formal involvement with the justice system. Again, it's certainly not a cure-all with respect to the public health crisis and the lack of preventative care um, around mental illness and other behavioral health needs, but we are cognizant of the fact that um, these services should be available not just at the point of arrest or the point of conviction, but for all members of any community we're working in that may benefit from them. So we've made some effort to do that um, in our work, and I think I would just add and this is where i think social workers may be particularly interested in start here we're also you know we see trauma informed care as an improvement on what might be thought of as first gen attempts to assist folks in the justice system with behavioral health needs you know, 10, 15 years ago, trauma-informed care wasn't really a hot topic of conversation, and you certainly didn't see um, a lot of treatment providers, particularly in substance abuse, even asking about trauma in their intakes or their assessments, um, let alone providing any evidence-based trauma-informed intervention. And again, a bonus for listeners, this wasn't in the book, a lesson learned in our work in Red Hook, where we saw a lot of individuals being arrested and brought to court um, for drug possession charges and other charges related to um, heroin addiction, and this is relevant with respect to the opioid crisis, we found that a lot of individuals had actually cycled through pretty robust traditional treatment programs, residential drug treatment programs, intensive outpatient programs. And they continued to relapse and reoffend and find their way back into the justice system. And it was only in assessing for and connecting individuals to trauma informed care that we saw individuals with very complex lives and clinical histories and criminal records getting better, staying better, and avoiding rearrest. So I think what's interesting at this moment is the recognition that we need more evidence based behavioral health approaches and an opportunity for social workers and other clinicians to inform the what when it comes to intervention and diversion and justice reform.
1: Um, I think that's a nice segue to the second large category of strategies that you identify. And and this, it seems to me, is the one that, that I suspect that many Americans and elected leaders will have the hardest time with. And that is to treat all defendants with dignity and respect. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and how that plays out in terms of of policies?
0: Sure. Um Sure. I think it is at the same time the simplest idea that we're proffering, but perhaps the most complex to actually try to incorporate into the daily practice of of the justice system. So um, a a scholar named Tom Tyler, who's now at, at Yale Law School a few years ago, came up with this idea that he calls procedural justice. And the idea, again, is relatively simple, which is that when people engage with the justice system, they certainly care about the outcome of their case. Um, did they win? <laughs> did they win their suit? Um, were they found guilty or not guilty? What was the punishment? But they, the, the central insight of procedural justice is they care just as much about the process um, and how they were treated along the, along the path to, to reaching that outcome. And that's a very, very powerful insight um, that Tyler has offered to the world. And I think the, 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 the thing that's particularly relevant in the context of trying to reduce the use of incarceration is that he he has found, and, and other researchers have subsequently confirmed that this effect, that when people feel like they've been treated fairly and decently by the justice system, they are more likely to be law-abiding. They are more likely to comply with court orders. They are more likely um, to... Um, to lead law-abiding lives. And that is just a a kind of a profound insight that if the justice system were fully able to embrace and operationalize could have a transformative effect. Um, And so I think our hope is that procedural justice will be embraced at every point and by every agency along the continuum of the criminal justice system from um, the police who are making stops to prosecutors who are interviewing um, witnesses and victims, um, to judges who are um, levying sentences, to probation officers, um, parole officers, and correction officers who are involved in in the supervision of of defendants and offenders who have been sentenced.
1: How do we do that? That seems to push so hard against... What seems to me the ethos that governs so much of how our systems treat criminals, right? That this, this is about this is about punishment, this is about vengeance, often, and, and to, to sort of to, to turn those individuals and the systems they inhabit toward this more humanistic approach. Even if there is research that tells them that it's likely to be more effective, we know the difficulties in getting people to pay attention to research. Are there sort of of, of strategies that you have seen work that that get those institutions to rethink their approach to doing what they're doing?
0: Well, I think uh, there's a a good news, bad news scenario. So I think the good news is the truth is that a lot of people are already doing this um, kind of approach. And the book profiles um, one judge in particular, Judge Victoria Pratt, um, who um, up until relatively recently was the chief judge of the municipal court in Newark, New Jersey who has really kind of transformed her courtroom and really the courthouse in in Newark um, from a foreboding place that is known locally as the green monster into something that feels more humane um, and more decent, um, motivated in part by by this research about the effectiveness of, of procedural justice. And I agree. I mean, at some level what you're getting at is a fundamental shift in in orientation for our system, which I think is oriented towards retribution, is oriented towards punitiveness. But what we are arguing for is the reality, you know, I think, I think we're honest. There are some people that are menaces to society that are threats to themselves and public safety, um, we're not ab- abolitionists. Um, there are, There is a, a need for some people to be incarcerated, and some people, some crimes are so horrific that we really do want to take a, a punitive response to them. But any honest look at the criminal justice system and the people who populate it reveals that the vast majority of these folks, even those who have engaged in, in some categories of behavior that are labeled violent are not in fact menaces to society. These are damaged individuals. And um, we really have a choice as a society. We can respond to them with vindictiveness and blame and try to castigate them out of of society, or we can respond to them with a measure of, of kindness and empathy. And I think that our argument is that doing so is not just the right thing to do at some moral level. It is actually a pathway towards a more effective justice system. And I think, oh, were you, well, a question
2: that we, I think, wrestle with in the book. um, And I think that any honest um, observer of the justice system or anyone that's tried their hand at changing it will admit it's very hard to change the culture of the justice system. And, you know, the culture of the U.S. justice system is hardly monolithic. They're at least... There are over 3,000 local jail systems across the United States. And then we have the prison systems. And of course, we have the federal system. Uh, What's interesting about procedural justice as both a crime prevention strategy as well as a culture change strategy is that everybody wins with procedural justice. And what we've seen in our experience is that practitioners feel better better about process, about their role in the justice system, alongside defendants who feel heard and respected. In other words, by treating defendants with respect and dignity, either from the bench or as a defense attorney representing a client or a prosecutor representing the public interest and the community, that practicing procedural justice reconnects everyone to the fundamental ideals that drove them to a career in public and civil service, rather than, say, corporate law or other things that they could do in the legal profession. And that the relationships and the interactions with defendants, most of whom are struggling with complex circumstances, but have both the will and the potential for redemption and a better life, that everyone feels more gratified. So how do you change culture and how do you get procedural justice to stick? You find a way to encourage practitioners to try their hand at it, and it is um, a it will motivate its continued use. The feedback mechanism is sort of built in, and it's a very positive and persuasive one.
1: There's a, a footnote to that. There's research that goes back to the early 90s, I think, by a guy called Joe Sauce, who's at the University of Minnesota, who uh, was interested in understanding the civic behaviors of low-income women on AFDC and SSI, respectively. And if you know anything about you know those programs, is is that SSI, because it's a, a a federal program run through Social Security, tends to have more formal criteria and guidelines. It's a more intelligible process uh and a more consistent kind of 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 means by which eligibility is determined, whereas AFDC has historically often been Uh, fairly arbitrary and capricious in in the manner in which it functions. And often uh, caseworkers themselves have treated applicants to AFDC uh, in a much more disrespectful and demeaning kind of way. What sauce found, uh, and this has now been replicated in other kinds of research around these programs, is that the women uh, who went on SSI, and they tend to have fairly similar kind of economic profiles, we're much more likely to vote, we're much more likely to volunteer for local organizations, we're much more likely to respond positively to sacrificing some of their own income to helping others or to helping their neighbors. Uh, So there's sort of the ways in which those institutions function uh, can also help make better citizens, if we draw those lessons. And you may know the subsequent work done by Vesla Weaver, uh, who looked at similar kinds of questions in the prison system uh, and found a very, very similar kind of thing, is, is that uh, those uh, uh, men who encountered the American criminal justice system uh, irrespective of their eligibility to vote when they got out were much less interested in voting, volunteering, civic engagement, much less likely to consider the needs and well-being of other people beyond themselves and that again is sort of of uh, further evidence of the ways in which these institutions can have effects on the individual that affects our own sort of collective civic
0: health. Yeah, that's entirely consistent with what we've seen and, and what we believe. And I think that one of the other things that's appealing about this kind of line of thinking um, is that – it chimes with some another kind of core belief of ours, which is that small things can make a, a big difference. And something as simple, and again, I don't wanna wax rhapsodic about it, but something as simple as making eye contact um, with a defendant from the bench, um, which come to find out lots of judges never do, um, can sign- can have profound impacts on the way that defendant experiences the court process, what they think of the legitimacy of the justice system, what they think of the legitimacy of, of government and can have far-reaching ripple effects and so it's both as kind of a simple change number one and then number two it's a it's a cost-free change it doesn't require us to invest 10 billion dollars in in new programming in order to implement.
2: No, I think it has the added benefit of, you know, in the universe of evidence based practices, it's one of the few that's intuitive. It's not, I, and to your point earlier, it's not necessarily one that's currently baked into the day to day operations and culture of the justice system, but it's a very intuitive idea that most of us learn as children, right? Treat others as you want to be treated. Um, and in the book, Judge Victoria Pratt even says that when she gets on the bench, the way she orients herself to defendants is I'm going to treat everyone in my courtroom the way I'd want my own family to be treated. Um, and to Greg's point, you know, um, there are a lot of ways to operationalize that for judges and other practitioners, and essentially to nudge um, judges and others to, you know, fall into the practice by making eye contact by avoiding the use of acronyms, um, by, you know, addressing individuals like people rather than defendants or inmates or, you know, wards of the state, right? And so there is something very fundamentally intuitive um, about procedural justice, which I think prognostically... Um, of all the evidence-based practices is the one that I think is best to bet on if we're going to see the transformation we're arguing for in the book.
1: Which brings us, I think, to the final category that you offer of of the the kinds of changes that we can think about implementing. uh, And that is to link people to effective community-based interventions rather than sending them off to prison. So, uh, we've, and we've talked a little bit about that, I think, but can you can talk a little bit more about what that looks like maybe in different kinds of instances and again, how we go about affecting those changes? Sure.
2: The, the best way to think about it, or I think the easiest way to think about it is that at every decision point along the continuum of criminal justice involvement from, well, we talked about crime prevention and we think that's important from arrest To So the decision by a police officer to cite and release with a ticket to appear in court or to divert to a prosecutor's decision about whether and how to charge on a case and whether to divert um, from the speedy assignment of counsel to the decision by a judge whether to detain or release a defendant pretrial all the way through sentencing and post-sentencing supervision. Again, at the outset, I mentioned that We have about 7 million individuals under some form of post-sentencing supervision in the United States. At every one of those decision points, there is an opportunity to off-ramp individuals out of the system entirely, or at least away from jails and prisons and towards services and positive support. At any decision point, there's going to be nuance and idiosyncrasy, both based on procedural requirements the jurisdiction obviously the charge but that fundamental rule holds across the entire continuum of criminal justice and we've seen effective alternatives to jails and prisons at every stage of the game and really you know what start here does is offer you know um, the blueprint and the next step among others, is to double down and make sure that whenever discretion allows that individuals are off-ramped or diverted or treated rather than incarcerated.
0: And Julian, why don't you just kind of highlight one or two examples of the kinds of alternative to incarceration programs that we highlight in the book?
2: Sure. So I'll give two examples. The first would be pre-trial since we opened with I think what is a very stunning and can be even shocking statistic that an overwhelming majority of the jail population in the United States hasn't actually been convicted of any crime and is are legally presumed innocent, we discuss supervised release in most jurisdictions. A judge who's making a determination about whether to detain or release a defendant whose case is going to proceed past that initial hearing or appearance or arraignment has two options, jail or out. And what supervised release offers is a middle ground. Depending on the jurisdiction, it looks different. Here in New York City, supervised release involves some modicum of supervision and um, more or less intensive based on the severity of the case and the risk presented by the defendant, Um, and then the voluntary um, offer of assessment services and other supports, social service, clinical, housing, job training, education, et cetera, but all voluntary. In other jurisdictions, you have supervision plus conditions of release that may be required by the court. Those could include engagement in social services, randomized drug testing, um intake appointments for mental health treatment but whether it's voluntary or mandatory and whether the supervision is light touch or intensive the idea here is a middle ground for judges between having to detain an individual while a case is pending or release them outright now i'd be remiss if i didn't emphasize that new york city is a model for the fact that you can release a lot of individuals and they will return to court And will avoid contact with the criminal justice system. New York City has, you know, leads the nation in a low incarceration rate and a low crime rate. And that's with judges releasing 70% of criminal defendants on their own recognizance simply to appear in court on their own volition. So, Two points there. A lot more individuals could be released on their own recognizance, and supervised release is a good alternative where release on recognizance is either inappropriate or a judge is not comfortable. Then, once a case has been sentenced, in the book we describe a range of program programming. We describe community courts that for lower-level misdemeanor crimes offer very short-term social services, clinical services, or civically-minded community service as an alternative to either a short stint in jail or a fine. And then for more serious cases, we describe much more intensive mental health intervention, trauma-informed care, um, or other sorts of CBT programming, cognitive behavioral therapeutic programming that can be built into a, a longer and more rigorous alternative sentencing uh, uh, you know, um, program. But the upshot there is that whether it's pre-trial, whether it's post-sentencing, whether it's a relatively minor case or whether it's a deeper and more serious matter, in most instances there's a better, sensible and safe alternative to recourse to jail and prison. You know, the bot-
1: does it cost us? Oops, sorry, I was just going to ask if it costs us any more to do that.
2: No, it costs us considerably less. And what's Exciting about that is it costs less in the moment, and then over time, it will cost, um, it will save, you know, millions of dollars to move from a system that builds jails and prisons to one that invests in community-based alternatives. It's, it's
0: not even close. I think you know the bottom line is uh, you know in the 70s and 80s, I think there was a lot of despair. Um, there was a formative piece of re- uh, meta-analysis by a sociologist named Robert Martinson. That basically came to the conclusion that nothing works. That um, all the rehabilitation programs, at, at that point, that the that were looked at, couldn't marshal any evidence of efficacy. And I think that the field has just, in, in the years since then, has been utterly transformed. And, and as Julian articulates, there are not just one, not just two, but dozens of different interventions. That we can point to that have been documented to change the behavior of participants. Does it mean that it works for every single person? No, but over time, if you invest in these programs and send enough participants to them, you will make a, a dent in criminal behavior, and you will do so at a um, at a cost that is, you know, pales in comparison to what we're spending on the prison industrial complex, um, and that's what Start Here is arguing for.
1: I'm Stephen Pipper with the New Books Network. We've been speaking with Greg Berman and Jillian Adler, co-authors of *Start Here*, a roadmap to reducing mass incarceration, which was published in 2018 by the New Press. Uh, so, Greg and Julian, as we get to our last couple of minutes, um, tell us a little bit about what CCI is working on now. What do, what do you sort of have your, your your eyes on that that you think might be particularly interesting to our listeners?
0: So I think that we're trying to operationalize the ideas that are contained in this book. And in particular, we are trying to participate um, in what I think is the most important criminal justice story currently at work in this country, which is the effort to close the jail complex on Rikers Island here in New York City. Um, I won't quote you chapter and verse about all the ills of that complex, but they've been pretty well documented by, by journalists and um, in class action lawsuits. And um, about a year ago, the, the mayor of New York City um, declared that he was actually in favor of closing uh, these jails. And I think that that's good news, but that's not job done. Um, in order to get them closed, there needs to be a continued reduction in the jail population, uh, which sits at about eight and a half thousand people as, as I, as we talk today, it needs to get down to around 5,000 people for, um, closure to be realistic. And then there's a long, hard slog, um, in terms of opening up smaller, more humane, uh, jail facilities in, in, in each of the boroughs rather than a a de facto penal colony, which is what we have now. And the Center for Court Innovation is trying to be a helpmate um, to uh, the court system and to the mayor's office as they look to engage in this work. And so I think that's the big challenge that's ahead of us next. Julian, anything you want to add to that?
2: I think that sums it up nicely. Uh, I maybe I would just add that you know the work here in New York City uh, parallels efforts that we're making um, uh, both with the MacArthur Foundation and their efforts to reduce the use of jails across the country, as well as other um, national initiatives. So you know, attempting to both take the lessons learned here at the Center for Court Innovation and here in New York City, um, you know, and take them to scale um, nationally. You know, that's something that we're working on. And then to continue, um, I guess, to, to, you know, to figure out how to the question that you asked earlier about procedural justice, how to make this stuff stick and how to make this stuff stick over the long haul. I do think that there's still considerable work to be done, not just around implementation, but around this fundamental question of how do you transform the culture of the justice system and how do you do it in a way that, um, Uh, brings all those involved along for the ride, not just uh, policymakers or legislature or, um, you know, or, you know, advocates, but really a, a sustainable solution where you really can win the hearts and minds of every critical player in the puzzle.
1: The book is Start Here, a Roadmap to Reducing Mass Incarceration. Greg Berman, Jillian Adler, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you again. Thanks.